1: You're listening to Quick to Listen. Each week we go beyond hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. I'm Morgan Lee, and I'm an assistant editor here at Christianity Today, and I'm joined, as usual, by my wonderful colleague, Mark Galley. Hey. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Pretty good. Who is our guest today?
2: Our guest is Shirley Hoogstra. Shirley Hookstra is the president of the Council of Christian Colleges and Universities. She's a graduate of Calvin College and the University of Connecticut Law School. And before her current calling, she was a partner in a well-known litigation law firm in New Haven, Connecticut, and had worked at Calvin College as well. And as you'll see from the introduction, she's the perfect person to talk about our topic today.
3: Shirley, how's it going? Well, well, um, in Washington, D.C. here, we um, have that perfect blend of humidity and heat. And uh, so I think that's actually the kind of heat atmosphere that we have in Washington, D.C., uh, with both weather and government um, comes it up.
2: There you go. How was the eclipse there?
3: You know, uh, the eclipse, it was just a sort of fascinating social uh, time, right? Uh, So we weren't in the perfect bandwidth, but we were all on the deck of the Dellenbach Center and with our our little glasses looking um, and actually enjoying each other's company. So it was actually a fun excuse to get together.
2: Exactly.
1: Awesome. As I'm sure that many of our listeners are aware, we're right in the middle of back to school season, and as a nod to this time of year, we thought it'd be worthwhile to discuss the state of Christian higher education. Faith-based colleges and universities sit in the middle of some of the most important discussions that the US is currently having, whether it be student loans, free speech, racism, safe spaces, online education, or religious freedom. Today on Quick to Listen, we'll hear how Christian colleges across the country are wrestling with these issues and what we can learn from their approach to these topics. Before we pepper Shirley with questions, though, I just want to take this time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who listens to this podcast and has decided to subscribe to our magazine. So our magazine comes out 10 times a year and our September issue just came out. And there's a really interesting editorial in there by our colleague Ted Olson, who has appeared as a host on this show from time to time. And he talks about foolish controversies. Mark, what did you think of his argument?
2: Well, Ted has made that argument in the hallways here for some time because he's been overseeing our uh, online presence for over a decade or so before we turned it over to Richard Clark. And he's well aware of how many foolish controversies we tend to get ourselves involved in. And it's just a good reminder. Nobody disagrees with an editorial like that, but... If you're like me, you just every once in a while you need, you know, do I really need to enter into this conversation? Is it really that important? Shouldn't we be talking about something else? And I think he did a really good job of talking about that, not only just theologically, but he marshaled so many biblical verses that make that same point. So obviously this is not a new problem.
1: Yeah, for sure. I found it very helpful. And just in terms of the work that we do, you know, it was about, I, I think in many ways at CT, we tried to help people know what is a worthwhile controversy, you know, for instance, on the show and something that is not necessarily worth the bandwidth of the church's energy to to get spent on that. That's
2: sort of one of our jobs here. Yep, one of our callings.
1: So anyone who wants to read this editorial, it is available in our September issue, and you can do that by subscribing. Or again, it's at orderct.com slash quick to listen, orderct.com slash quick to listen. All right, Charlie. it's so great to get a chance to talk to you again. I know that I interviewed you three or four years ago, so I'm so excited for this discussion. Just wondering, what are some of the most important priorities for Christian colleges this year?
3: So um, I can answer that by looking at it in two ways, sort of on the ground campus-wide and then from the national perspective. So on the ground campus-wide, a first priority is always to welcome students onto the campus so that they get a really sure footing um, in their academic work, in their community work, in their spiritual lives so that they can flourish and finish at the local level, which is your campus. We want Christian higher education to be accessible to people and that's why they're starting. We want people to see it as affordable and that affordability comes through the scholarships of so many supporters and um, student loans and and, um, hard work by parents and students. And then we want uh, people to graduate So it's it's a a finish with a purpose, both a vocational purpose and a a spiritual deepening in their lives. So. That's this week. All of our campuses are starting. It's so exciting on the campuses. Um, students have that high energy of both anticipation and anxiety. Faculty members are ready to be in their classrooms. Uh, professional staff are so ready to welcome them into their residence halls and into their um, co curricular life. And then on the national level, of course, we would like to see the Higher Education Reauthorization Act um, implemented. This has been a desire of the national government of Congress for a very long time. And Christian Ired is very much involved with government on a daily basis, helping to write legislation that fosters this important common good, which is higher education, a common good that never forgets the fact that religious colleges and universities add a particular wonderful slice of higher education for those students and parents who want that for their child.
2: To tell us a little bit more about what this act, what does it say exactly or what is it about?
3: Sure. The um, Higher Education Reauthorization Act is really Congress's ability to fund the billions of dollars that go to all students to get educated and the reason why this is so important in this funding um, is so important is because in a democracy I don't think anybody would disagree with the fact that colleges and universities have that opportunity to educate a population so that they can engage in government well and that is in that's in so many ways but it is also the teaching of what I'm going to call the soft skills like civility the ability to listen the ability to lead, the ability to have an appreciation for difference. That wouldn't happen if the government didn't allocate literally billions of dollars to students and families. There are 4,700 different accredited colleges in the United States. So um, the government has been doing this reauthorization sort of like as an interim every year they have to authorize the money. Um, They've been wanting to, for a long time, look to make sure But when the government authorizes all this money, there are safeguards in place. And one of the safeguards that Christian colleges are wanting to make sure is in place is that the religious character and mission of a Christian college cannot be tampered with or coerced into being something that it doesn't want to be based on money.
1: Yeah. Have you seen that in Jeopardy over the years, Shirley?
3: Well, the Jeopardy part is that um, I think today what we see is, and this is in Charlottesville, this is in the, the concepts of safe spaces on campuses. Today, we are not as equipped to work with difference. Um, Sometimes we want to shut down difference. Sometimes we want to demonize difference. And this goes on the left and the right speaking politically. We are always vigilant to make sure that no important voice is sort of shut down. And what that does for Christians, though, is um, just like we want the government to be committed to this freedom of speech and freedom of association for religious concepts, beliefs, and values, Christians have to be concerned about beliefs and values and commitments that they might not agree with either and model this sort of, you know, convicted civility or pluralism that makes America the kind of unique democracy that is really still a beacon to the world.
1: You know, this year is my homecoming, so I will have been out of school for a number of years worthwhile deeming a homecoming, I guess. And one of the conversations that was just becoming salient when I was a student was big conversation about online education and how that kind of fit into You know, a school that was traditionally a resident, you know, a school where most of the students lived on campus and had a really strong commitment to community. And when they defined community, it was like very much in-person community. I'm just wondering if we can talk about if you've seen any tensions between how Christian colleges kind of live out their mission and how online education is, it fits into that.
3: That is such a great question because we hear a lot in the news about online education, and what does that actually look like? You know, three years ago, um, I wasn't as versed about online education as I've had the experience now. And here's here's what is a truth: there's no pure, generally online education, and there's no pure, any more residential college experience. Almost every institution has what, what we call blended options. So let's just take um, if you are a, a traditional student, um, age 20, 18 to 25, you could decide that you wanted to be on campus, have all the benefits of a campus experience, a great faculty, a great peer group, great facilities, great conversations in your residence hall or in your club or association. But you also may be working, you know, um, at least. of our college-age students are working while they're going to college. And so uh, that means that you might want to take an online course in the evening. Or you might be able to take an online section of a traditionally offered course that allows you that flexibility and convenience. So this idea of the blended experience is more and more um, the case, especially for the graduate programs that follow the undergraduate experience. What we do know is that the traditional campus has a high degree of completion and that one of the questions that institutions that have... Um, more of an online presence is the challenge to make sure that those students feel connected and supported. So that's why the blended option has worked so well for most of the private institutions of higher education.
1: Would you say that there's like an actual kind of Christian way to do online education? And again, I'm just drawing from my own experience here, but a lot of the part way that I understood my Christian college education was actually, it was partially in the classroom, but a lot of it was through conversations that I had in person with professors and with staff, you know, in chapel services and so forth. And that's something that, you know, if I had been only taking classes online, I would never gotten to have to chance to participate in.
3: Formation is exactly the question you're asking about. How do you do formation of a person? Um, This deeper understanding, the challenging um, questions that a person across the table could ask you, how does that happen if you're in a cyber kind of space, right? And my own son um, uh, is a medical school graduate, and all of his classes were offered online. And you'd say, really? Do you really want doctors to be prepared with the online courses? Now, you could also go hear the professor in the classroom. They had both options every single class. Here's what happens. A good, thoughtful online professor knows how to make sure that the conversations are going peer-to-peer, student-to-student, as well as faculty-to-student. One of the advantages people say about online education is that everybody has to comment. So sometimes, as we've all known, if you've ever sit in a lecture, if you've ever been in a, a, a classroom, you can sit in the back and never talk. That's not the case on, in an online class. They have Requirements to speak, to contribute, and although it's always done through a a written sort of, but you know, words, written words can be very effective. Now, that being said, I think there's a real case, if you can, to be in that very important four to five year environment of embodied life. They they talk about, you know, that that community is when you can see somebody, when you can have all of your senses at play. I'm going to say that being said, online pedagogy is growing in sophistication at leaps and bounds. The other phrase that I would use for life today is profound adaptability. There is no longer the sort of option to say, well, I'd like not to be part of that new movement. Um, I think that um, one of the things about a creator God is that he's a creator god that has not stopped and i think we have to look at these kinds of opportunities as opportunities to be creative about the values we have and and then how to accomplish it i'd say morgan like you've alluded to it's a work in progress
2: that's a good point surely i mean it it is about adapting to the way the world is i remember i don't know 10 years ago i took a trip to uh, south africa and they were offering it wasn't online but it was courses throughout africa on CD for pastors in the that could not make it could not afford to go to a code with South Africa and could not travel there and they were offering MDiv and other degrees and it just struck me as that this is this was an absolutely necessary thing if we were going to give in this case seminary level education to pastors in Africa education has some disadvantages that we've learned to account for well online education is going to have some disadvantages that we have to learn to account for so that's the way the world is so we better learn how to do it let me just get back to that issue of either free speech or academic freedom. Now, certainly the Christian College wants to be a place where any student uh, can feel free to express a view or express a doubt in classroom among, among their peers about any topic. I mean, that's the point of higher liberal education. But is it not the case that in a Christian confessional college that lives by a statement of faith, that these sort of things are in in a boundary? And that's one of the things we're worried about, the government coming and saying you can't have any boundaries. How does that work out at a Christian college level?
3: So freedom of speech, this ability to speak truth, uh, the ability to live in community, um, commitments that are Part and parcel of a Christian academics life, which is both commitment to truth, commitment to saying hard things, um, but also saying But I've got these additional commitments to a community that may have confessional kinds of commitments as well. So, first of all, there could not be a better topic to wrestle with. And being part of higher education and then add the layer of Christian higher education, there just is no more exciting or worthy work to do when it comes to this idea of how to speak the truth in love within a understanding, a community of faith. So the first bottom line is that Christian colleges are completely committed to academic freedom. And just like all principles, we say, well, what does academic freedom look like in a faith perspective? And so um, some people talk about it uh, in a Christian perspective as having limitations. We don't actually see it as limitations because like in a public institution, there it is frowned upon to really unpack the spiritual nature of big questions. My daughter was at a very uh, excellent, uh, outstanding public institution for her master's work, and basically they were forbidden to talk about faith. Um, There wasn't the language or the tolerance uh, to talk about faith. But at a Christian college, not only can you ask the important questions like euthanasia, assisted suicide, Ending life through uh, abortion, a human sexuality, what are the limits, the idea of consent, the idea of self-moderation. Um, how does that butt up against, you know, this sort of total, you know, consensus? do what you want. How would you talk about those big questions? What happens when I die? What's the meaning of life? How would you ever really talk about those fully unless you could talk about the idea of a God, um, the idea that there is purpose and meaning because we were created beings. So we actually see that we have unlimited freedom to talk about all of life in the context of faith.
2: Yeah, that that is an interesting contrast. It is. It works against the prejudice that says if you're in a Christian college, you can actually talk about fewer things, when in fact, because of our more universal, cosmic, metaphysical point of view, it does give us permission to talk about more things in a wider scope. Now, that doesn't take away from the fact that from the faith perspective, there is a there is a framing. That is to say, you're not going to have a professor at a Christian college uh, have a class on why the Trinity isn't a a true doctrine for the Christian faith. Yeah, but you will have—how should we think about the Trinity in the 20th century?
3: That's exactly right. You you would certainly talk about that. You you wouldn't have a professor that denies the existence of sin, right? Right. But you would say, how do we talk about sin? How do you communicate about sin? How how do people compare acknowledging sin, but also um, having a sense of tolerance, right? But there are theological convictions that would not be able to be contradicted in a particular institution. And people know that going in. So one of the things we 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 talk to our academics about is, in our institutions, is be clear about um, what some of those confines would be. Have charity towards one another. Um, if it feels like you've gone into an area that, that um, maybe seemed like it was an area that you would not want to contradict – and then have a good process um, when there seems to be a question about a faculty's member's point of view or academic freedom and a school's uh, particular uh, commitments. It actually is a deeply held commitment to truth telling, but there needs to be some protection of Great thinking within the academy. And that's why academic freedom first started because sometimes um, people who get paid to think think things that are on an edge. That need to be said or explored, but are scary or are controversial. And so that's why in a Christian environment, um, we need to be able to hold each other well in community while having difficult conversations.
1: I think across a number of secular institutions, we've seen student protests um, when particular speakers have been invited to speak on campus, um, or in some instances, commencement speakers deciding that they're not going to go ahead and deliver remarks at a campus after there was some sort of campus uproar. Have we seen those issues play out at Christian universities?
3: Christian universities have an advantage in this regard. There is such a high value of community and consultation. So um, while there's a lot of individual actions that happen on a Christian college campus, because there's a a sense of developed um, and high trust between administration and faculty, people consult and they say, is this a good idea? What are the pros and cons and how would we frame it? So I actually see a lower incidence of what I would just call the unthought through invitation. And I think because the campuses have the ability To have a fairly developed practice of consultation, um, that that happens less. On uh, secular campuses, I feel for them because I know that the goal of having this unfettered access to ideas with really thoughtful engagement is actually being hampered today because we don't have the underlying skills to do that. And now we could talk about social media. We could talk about when you're between the ages of five and 18, when you're learning how to play on a playground and be with others and you have models, whether it's a church environment or a, or a civic environment like Boy Scouts or Girl Scouts or some kind of group that is actually helping you form as a person. But you haven't learned how to live with ideas you disagree with in a civil way. Then you come to a college campus. And you're actually unprepared for the kind of ideals that a campus wants for you. And I would add this, this is complicated by the fact that often majority culture students have not stood up for non-majority students who have had to sort of take a lot of hurtful conversation under the guise of perhaps, well, this is, you know, good free thought. And so now uh, majority students are standing up it almost as an expression of loyalty or camaraderie to quiet a controversial speaker. You see, so there are actually interesting motives that are at play in these discussions. I never actually regret the hard conversation or the hard moments because they actually help human beings think better. Now, that doesn't mean they're easy, but I think we can talk about why do we want to shut down a speaker? Why is there offensive
0: to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com.
2: I will say anecdotally that I've, uh, and I'm more familiar with Wheaton College, which is right down the road here, but I'm sorry that I can't remember the visiting lecturer's name. So he was used to speaking on secular campuses, and he was amazed at the level of civility and the, the amount of things students and faculty could, in fact, talk about at a Christian college. He, would, he was just under the, that prejudice that Christian colleges were more restrictive when, in fact, they find themselves more open. Now, is, let me ask you, by the way, is Liberty University part of the CCCU? They are not. Okay. In one respect, they do model what I think you're talking about. That over the years, starting with Jerry Falwell himself, They have regularly invited people who are not only non-Christian, but are actually antagonistic to the Christian faith to address their students. It seems to me, as long as you frame it, we're going to listen to someone who's very critical of our faith, and we want to listen to what he has to say, because we want to be able to engage people like him when we leave this place. It strikes me that any Christian college would be willing to do that, and I think a lot of them are.
3: Oh, not, not only a lot of them are, Mark. That is a mark of our Christian colleges. You can look across the board. People have series of speakers that come in, like Calvin College has the January uh, series that invites, it's like a liberal arts curriculum for the community, where they have just a wide swath of people, or there will be festivals of faith and writing where you see a wide swath of people College of the Ozarks has an excellent speaking series. Um, Almost, I I, I could I could name fifty different campuses who are inviting people to come and cause an interesting conversation to happen, with the underlying understanding that we're not going to agree with everything this person says.
1: In my experience, it's less about what this person is saying than how they're saying it, and I think this is actually where some of these conversations become a little bit harder because it can become more of a judgment call. I just remember at my school, there was um, some speaker who was, I don't re- I don't want to get into the whole specifics, but I believe that there was an ask by a student group for a particular speaker to come that was either denied or shut down or the administration played some role in preventing that speaker to come in who happened to represent a particular political point of view. And I believe that the speaker was... Not encouraged or just actively discouraged from speaking there because of tone. But the result was that the students who are from that particular political group, you know, felt silenced in some ways. And so, you know, increasingly, you know, in an increasingly polarized world, it means that the people who are representing those polls are often going to speak more emphatically and, you know, often less charitably towards people, sometimes even in their own group, um, not to mention the other side. And so, I imagine trying to get a diverse view of viewpoints can be hard if you feel that some of the more extreme fringes, you know, kind of have walked away from this underlying commitment to have to express their opinions in a particular way.
3: Right. So um, nobody has an absolute right to speak their opinion at any venue. Um, and so speakers, uh, some of them actually like to be that way, delivered in such a way that it's either highly offensive or Uh, Prone to um, be controversial. And so, this is where, being a private institution, you get to shape the education of the students and families who are paying you for a great education. And every leader on a campus, on a Christian college campus, takes that very seriously. And you also have to say, you know, with the internet, with television, cable, you can get so many opinions. You don't have to just get it in one place. But what you want to shape at a campus is a vibrant, community where people are learning how to be citizens in the world once they graduate.
2: That's actually parallels one of our priorities here at Christianity Today. We are pretty much open to having anyone write in our pages about almost any topic if it's related to Christianity and today. But one of the things we're trying to model is not just good biblical and theological thinking, but a civic and charitable way of doing that with one another. So if the writer is incapable of writing without attacking and mischaracterizing people, we have no interest in him or her being in our pages. But if they can make the same argument in a way that practices these other virtues of civil conversation, we we more than welcome them.
3: John Inuzzo, in his book around pluralism, writes about the virtue of humility. Can you come to a conversation with a posture of humility, meaning that I could not only learn from people with whom I share common commitments, but I could also learn from people for for whom our commitments vary. In religious terms, we talk about this in, as a common grace, right? So God acts out of both special grace, those to whom um, are believers, but also common grace, meaning that every image bearer, that's all of us in the world, have a, a potential of instructing us in a way that if we are open enough and humble enough to learn, we will be blessed.
1: Do you see conversations about race on in, in Christian colleges and universities feeling as polarized as those that are secular?
3: I would say they're as hard, but not as polarized. And I'll make this distinction. I have data from 2005 to 2015 that one of the misconceptions about Christian colleges is that they're also uh, mostly white. And that is not true. Um, we have uh, probably 20% of our colleges that are uh, non-majority, majority places. We have almost all of our schools are 30% non-white uh, participants and growing. And because when you uh, make that commitment, you are going to have missteps and hard conversations. Here's the advantage of a Christian college: you have the language of sin, repentance reconciliation, forgiveness. And when you have a common language that draws you to the principles of the scriptures in order to understand the sin of racism, you have a starting point that our secular friends and neighbors don't have. And this is not a small advantage. It's a huge advantage. We recently um, are publishing with Abilene Christian Press a book called Diversity Matters, and it is faculty and leaders of color from all the Christian colleges that is going to be a tremendous asset to Christian colleges and others where we hear from leaders of color on our campuses what it's like to feel invisible what it's like to feel taken advantage of, what it's like to feel like you're working two jobs, what it feels like to be an agent of change on campuses, what it feels like to see and appreciate the commitments of majority allies to this work of racial progress and reconciliation, why you can call out white supremacy, why you can call out white privilege, why you can name that in a context of civility. And I think that race is the number one issue affecting The United States. And I think it's the number one issue for Christians.
1: Moving from one hot button topic to another hot button topic, for the last year or so, the CCCU has explored possible ideas for federal legislation that would simultaneously combine federal protection for religious freedom in the public square and for LGBTQ persons. How have CCCU schools kind of engaged with this effort?
3: We believe that there should be a common goal, and uh, and almost no Christian organization disagrees with this. Here's the common goal. Christian mission in the public square without penalty. So anybody who is attentive to the trends of uh, demographics and belief in the United States will know that people's familiarity with religion, their own personal commitment to religious belief and practice is decreasing, even though still high compared to other parts of the world, is decreasing. And what we find in Washington, D.C. is that while there is really a vibrant faith life here We often run into pockets of people who do not understand the importance of religious faith and why people might organize their lives around it. And so um, we now, as a Christian organization, looked for strategies because we think that if Christian mission, life and practice were excoriated from the civil common good in the United States, was lessened, was marginalized, actually our democracy would be thinner our well-being would be thinner. So we are looking to protect this vibrant Christian expression in the public square. Now, what's the strategy? One strategy to do that is to say, not only do we have to have this protection around religious mission and expression and worship and participation and association, but you know what? LGBTQ people, They are asking for something that is very important to them, which is not to be fired unfairly, which is to be able to get credit, uh, to have employment that's not unfairly impacted by their um, way of being. If these come into collision, and they sometimes do, how could we be for each of these important principles living in a uh, healthy and protected way as an LGBTQ person and being able to live fully into? religious beliefs that LGBTQ persons might disagree with or even find offensive. So this is what we're working on. And um, in our organization, our campuses, uh, accepting the fact that there needs to be various strategies. We keep our, our campuses informed. Nobody has to sign on to a particular strategy to be a Council for Christian Colleges and University member. But our colleges and universities, they want to make a difference in the public square for the next 25, 100, and 200 years if the Lord tarries. And for that, we need to be creative about strategies.
2: I understand the uh efforts at Biola have been particularly helpful on on both parts. Can you talk about that story a little bit?
3: Right. So Biola University is an outstanding um, institution in California. Just a quick uh, background on California. Sacramento state legislature decided to say that if you were at a particular Christian mission with particular beliefs that were about a traditional understanding of marriage between a man and a woman, that we they would not give you the $9,000 Cal Grant that would go to all students regardless of the school they pick, So they actually penalize traditional marriage-committed Christian colleges financially. So this was significantly a challenge. And so this is what happened. Um, Our Christian colleges got involved with Sacramento in a way that they never— been involved before. And um, you mentioned Biola. So President Barry Corey took upon himself personally to get to know the drafter of that bill, Representative Evan Lowe, a gay man who did not have any particular faith perspective, but had a certain incorrect understanding of what was happening at Biola in California. And through that personal relationship And through seeing that they were being Sacramento was actually being unfair in their portrayal of this Christian college campus, they reversed their legislation and asked instead to have a relationship with Christian colleges to make sure that LGBTQ students were not treated unfairly. And we want to be able to hold and teach two biblical commitments that we believe are essential and important in Christian colleges.
1: We can link to a Washington Post piece by Biola's president, and I think he co-wrote it with this state representative as well because it's a pretty powerful piece.
2: I think they've done a good job of holding to a traditional biblical sexual ethic While at the same time, welcoming those who struggle with that ethic in their campus without discriminating against them or harassing them or anything like that.
3: Having relationships across the aisle matter. And here's one of the things that listeners, constituents, people who are um, interested but not immediately involved, give a generous explanation to the behavior of others don't don't say quickly well a relationship with a particular person on the other side of a belief um, or a value means that someone's capitulating their own strongly held beliefs I think as a Christian community if we could practice the idea of Having the most generous explanation for someone's behavior before we condemn it would be a step forward for us as we enter into really controversial spaces.
1: Thanks so much for those challenging words there. I'm going to wrap our conversation right now. As always, we invite people to give us feedback on our social media pages We're on Facebook at facebook.com slash podcasts and on Twitter at ct podcasts. Now is the time of the show that we call Precious Moments, which is when we ask Everyone here to share something that is bringing them joy this week. Shirley, would you like to go first?
3: Well, one of the highlights um, of uh, my recent year, and and it happened just this past week, was that my husband and I and our son and daughter-in-law were... Scuba diving certified for open water dives. So, starting a new sport at any age can be scary. And uh, going underwater with a tank and a breathing apparatus and making sure that you've got all those parts right can be scary. And just like any new sport, you're not very good at when you start. But here's what happened when you do something together, like when we did it with family and we were there to cheer each other on. Um, and when we felt uncomfortable or had a lot of anxiety and we could encourage each other, we actually got to see God's wonderful world underneath the water surface. And it was it was exquisite to behold. And it gives me great joy. I sort of conquered something that I wasn't really excited about. But my husband wanted me to be scuba diving certified because we all want to do this um, as a family vacation activity. So I conquered it. And and we're happy, and and my husband's really happy, and I'm really happy. So it was a win-win-win.
1: Where did you do it at?
3: Uh, We did our open water dives down in Florida.
1: Oh, that sounds really cool. All right, Mark, you have a precious moment?
2: Yeah, I uh, was at the gym yesterday. I've been trying to get back in shape again. So I'm at the gym, sweating away, pulling weights, pushing weights, doing all sorts of things, feeling miserable, feeling depressed that I am not as in good a shape as I should be. And this younger guy comes up to me as I'm about to walk out of the weight room. He says, you are awesome. You are killing it.
3: Oh, that's great.
2: (laughs) That was so encouraging. Even though it wasn't true, it was so encouraging. So...
1: Mark, are you on social media? So uh,
2: I'm actually starting to make my way on social media, Twitter. Every once in a while, Mark Galley and Facebook, same thing. But mostly you'll find me through The Galley Report, G-A-L-L-I, which can be found at ChristianityToday.com slash The Galley Report.
1: All right. So my precious moment, I guess, is kind of related to both of yours because it's athletic in that way. So this Sunday was the Air and Water Show in Chicago which I had never been to, but I realized I had was at this point taking for granted that I would go to it at some point. So I was like, I need to actually go to it. There's very few parts of like Michigan that you can actually swim in. A lot of times the lifeguards like yell at you if you get in the water anywhere like deeper than your shoulders, which is really annoying. But there was this one part right close to where the air and water show was taking place. And basically I just like got to swim in the water and watch the air and water show, which to me is like the perfect thing to do on a Sunday afternoon. I was like, does it get any better than this? I don't think it does. (laughs) The water felt so warm because in august is like the best time of year if you're going to go swim in lake michigan and i was just enjoying myself so much and listeners can find me at m-e-p-a-y-n-l
2: okay thank you very much for uh listening to another podcast of quick to listen it's a production of christianity today you can find our other podcasts by searching iTunes for Christianity Today. And remember to head to our orderct.com slash quick to listen to subscribe for our lowest price. This show is produced by my co-host Morgan Lee, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. And if you like the show, make sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps. Thank you. See you next week.